many 19-year-olds do you know that could, when Shaq is hurt, step into the number 10 role and have all these people talking about potentially, like, where are you going to put Shaq now? Like, even the, the fact that people are asking that question is insane. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the third special edition of the MIR 97 podcast, season one. I'm Alex Calabrese, editor-in-chief and Chicago Fire beat reporter for Men in Red 97. I'm here with Jack King, our creative director. And today we are joined by a very special guest, MLS broadcaster and on-air personality for Apple TV and Chicago Fire club ambassador, Tyler Terrence. Before we begin with Tyler, this is just a quick reminder to check out our previous special episode with Eli Lesser and the rest of our episodes on the Men in Red 97 podcast. And now we'll move on to the, to the main stuff. Tyler Terrence, as, as we mentioned, Chicago Fire FC Club Ambassador, MLS Commentator on Apple TV last season, Chicago Fire Commentator on WGN, and in the past as well, Big Ten Network, Sirius XMFC, US Open Cup, and CONCACAF. So Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I, uh, I'm excited to be here. Let's do it. Really excited to have you on. Uh, privileged to have you on the show. So first, we'll just talk a little bit about like going back to the very beginning how you first got involved with soccer, what made you fall in love with the sport, and where did you start playing? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in the north central suburbs of New Jersey, and um, my dad always liked to play soccer when he was growing up, and but it was never really a sport that um, he and I would like watch together. It was more so he introduced it to me from a playing standpoint, and I immediately fell in love with it, and I was pretty good as a, as a young kid, like four, five, six, seven years old, and just really fell in love with the concept of scoring goals. That was like my favorite thing to do in the entire universe. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I played basically from like four or five years old up until, you know, college and even a little bit beyond that. But like my love for like watching the game didn't really start until I would say um, sophomore or junior year of high school um, when I got introduced to Liverpool Football Club by a club coach of mine in New Jersey and everything like that. So like really becoming a fan of the game and the student of the game didn't happen until later because, you know, it was with my dad, it was more so like Jets, Mets, Knicks, Rangers, you know, traditional American sports in, in New Jersey and in the area. Um, but I really just started to sink my teeth into Liverpool and sink my teeth into Champions League and the whole thing um, when I was like, you know, 13, 14, 15 around there. But yeah, so that's kind of how I got into the game of soccer and then, um, you know, ended up playing in college. And when I found out that I wanted to get into broadcasting, um, I just sort of said like, I want to be the best American voice in the history of the game. And that was sort of, you know, how this whole thing got started. You mentioned you played in college at Hobart. Can you talk a little bit about that? And if you have any specific memories from when you were playing there? Oh, boy. Um, a lot of very specific memories. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting and like such a rewarding experience in playing at the Division Three level. And um, I had a knee surgery at the age of 17, um, right in the middle of recruiting or right before recruiting season started my junior year. And I had a couple of division one offers, even my sophomore year. And they got ripped off the table as soon as I tore my knee because I had a full blown meniscus repair. And like going division three was never really something that crossed my mind. And then when the offer stopped coming in and I realized that I just wasn't the same player that I was after the knee surgery, it just sort of became more and more of a thing where I wanted to play division three. And I get there and it was a rude awakening from a fitness standpoint and from like an actual running and discipline and tactical standpoint because we got by with a lot of pretty like fairly straightforward things in high school and in club and, and everything like that. But um, I got recruited as a striker and then converted into a left back actually um, by the time junior year rolled around. So like, you know, we recruited an All-American my 
sophomore year and co my coach was just sort of like we want to find a way to get you on the field but you're probably not going to be playing at striker and i said okay fine like let's try out left back and let's see what happens my fondest memories actually are like obviously being with the guys and i have some best friends for life that like you know i still keep in touch with on a daily basis to this day but one of the more interesting things that came about from my playing experience outside of falling into broadcasting and like that whole thing coming to fruition was um, going to study abroad in Copenhagen and playing for a semi-professional team over there that like, you know, I ended up playing in like the Danish FA Cup over there or their equivalent to, you know, the FA Cup and the US Open Cup and stuff like that. And um, really immersed myself into Danish culture through soccer and and really like started to take a lot of different things seriously, both from like a broadcasting standpoint and then also my fitness, how I was taking care of myself and everything like that. And that sort of led to having a very good junior year, very good senior year and things of that nature. I would say that the most like vivid memory was um, my senior year. We needed to basically win out for the rest of the season to be considered for an at-large bid or to, you know, like get the top seed in our conference tournament with eight games remaining. And we did that. We beat one of the best teams in the country in conference play. And we ended up 10th um, in the country the last week of the season, my senior year. Um, and then we lose on an own goal in the conference semifinals. And all of us thought we were good to go for an at-large bid at 13-3-2, having played against five ranked opponents in the country and beating two of them. Um, and we got snubbed at him in an at-large bid, um, which was pretty brutal. But that's like that's the most vivid memory because I think it's the most recent, and that's how my college career came to an end. But um, unfortunately, it's a negative one. But but those are some, some pretty uh, fond memories to look back on, even if they are negative. So how did that come about that you got into broadcasting? Was that something you always thought about when you were a teenager and it was just a natural progression? Or was it something that kind of came later when you had those setbacks, injuries and stuff like that? No, it was all it was all from injuries. So I had two more meniscus surgeries after my first one um, at the ages of 19 and 20. And so I was always hurt. And going into junior year, me and a buddy of mine were put on video duty for a preseason friendly at SUNY Cortland, all the way in upstate New York. And like, we were put on video duty and told by our coach to shut up and film the game. And it was a rainy, miserable day. Both of us were injured. We didn't travel our student manager. So that's why we were filming. And it was just for tactical purposes. It wasn't a broadcast. And we decided to put on a fake broadcast of our own team's game. I did fake play-by-play. -play. He did fake uh, color commentary and put on an English accent that sounded Australian half the time. So lo and behold, we do this like super inappropriate broadcast of our own team's game. And we're talking about what guys were doing the previous weekend. We're talking about who guys are dating. And it's just like... The, the the tape does exist. It's buried inside of my mom's house in West Orange, New Jersey, and it will never see the light of day, not for $10 trillion. We ended up doing that, and we told our assistant coach because we were afraid to tell our head coach what we, what we did, and he played it for everybody on the bus ride back home to campus, and guys were in, like, tears laughing. And we get back to campus, and somebody grabs him by the scruff of my neck when, um, when I'm getting off the bus, and it's my coach, and I was like, holy crap, I'm about to get kicked off the team right now. Like, it was that inappropriate. And he pulls me off, and he goes you were actually pretty good despite the fact that you were kind of mocking the profession. Like, I think that you should look into soccer commentary and like sports commentary. And I really had no interest in doing anything of the sort. So the only other experience that I had was doing public address announcing for our basketball team. But like, that's because there was reciprocity from the winter athletes and the fall athletes. We would help out with some of their game days and they would help us out with some of our game days when the other one wasn't in season. So my responsibility was being the PA announcer. That was the only other job that I had had on the microphone leading up to that. I wanted to be like a sports psychologist and then I didn't really want to do that. And I got my degree in psychology. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So when my coach told me that, I was like, sure, why not? We have a student radio station um, on campus and 45 minutes down the road from Syracuse. People always ask me, 
you know, why did you go to Hobart as opposed to going to Syracuse, which is one of the, you know, best broadcasting schools in the world. Um, and it was because I didn't know I wanted to do this until this all happened. Um, so that's how it kind of got started. I called my first ever day calling games for WHWS 105.7. Um, I called four games in a day. I called two women's NCAA games once we lost my senior year. And then I called a back-to-back uh, basketball game, uh, women's and men's. And it was the most fun I've ever had. And I should have been drinking and having a good time with all of my buddies and celebrating the end of, you know, our collegiate career and everything like that. But I was having the most fun on the microphone. And I was like, I can find out a way to make more than $7 an hour doing this. Then I think that this is what I want my career to be. And that's sort of how the whole thing got started. Awesome. So then after, after you got out of school, you eventually started moving pretty quickly into soccer, into, into sports in general. Was there a moment where it just kind of made you sit back and say like, wow, this is crazy what I'm doing right now. Like I can say, for instance, myself, I'm pretty young. I just started writing past two or three years, but I remember the Shakiri press conference. That was the first thing I was covering the Chicago Fire. And I was like, wow, that is Jordan Shakiri sitting right in front of me. And I'm talking to Jordan Shakiri. Did you have a moment like that? Ooh. Um, yeah, and it was with, with Didier Drogba and Phoenix Rising. I was the voice of Phoenix Rising remotely, like in South Florida, Vista World Link, in the studios that I was working at for three years. But uttering his name every single Saturday when he um, came over from Montreal and was like part owner, part player, and like calling Didier Drogba's name, that was the moment for me. I was just like, this is a little insane. And then it slowly but surely started to spiral like and have different moments like that like introduce Shakira at that press conference that was a wild experience for me as a liverpool fan like i had a little bit of butterflies and like was pretty nervous doing that and then you know sitting down with wayne rooney week one of this mls season working for apple tv and mls like that was another one like these moments continue to happen and I, they never get old and like doing christian pulisic and the united states men's national team during the gold cup run in 2019 for the world feed that was pretty crazy was on the call for a CONCACAF Champions League final in 2018 when I was 25 years old. Had no business calling that game, but did. Like, all of these things, like, happened, like, slowly but surely. And every time I would, like, walk away from it, I'd just be like, you do not belong here. You should not be doing this right now. <laughs> like, it was very much uh, imposter syndrome. Obviously, lots of great work you did really quickly right out of college. 2020, you come over to the Chicago Fire. What did you know about the team before you joined, before you became the voice of the fire on WGN? A little dysfunctional. Honestly, like, I mean, I called, I called some Open Cup games um, from Vista and some fire games. And like, I also just remember hearing stuff in the building and reading stuff and following along and just knowing that like they had very limited success coming into, I mean, like in the, 2020, I mean, in 10 years, only made the playoffs at one point in time. And now it's 11 out of the last 13 years without without a playoff run. So, like, I knew that it was a team that was struggling to find its way. But I also knew that Joe Mansueto had just taken over. And I knew that they were moving to WGN. And I knew that things were heading in the right direction. And even if that wasn't the case, there was no way I was ever going to say no to the job. To be the voice of the Chicago Fire, like, I was always saying yes to it. But I did know that I wasn't stepping into LAFC and I wasn't stepping into Atlanta United and I wasn't stepping into, you know, some other successful team in Major League Soccer. I was stepping into the Chicago Fire in a group that, like, really hadn't been all that successful recently. And the dysfunctional part that I mentioned, that was just more so from, like, a results standpoint, not even ownership or anything like that. It was just, like, 
Osti and Feinsteiger have been playing center back the last time that I'd called the game and like they were still trying to like figure everything out. Um, but yeah, no, it's it, it was one of those ones where I just jumped at the opportunity. And when you got to Chicago, um, there were some other names that were involved in that commentary. Arlo White, Premier League commentator, very famous. Tony Miola, Hall of Famer, one of the best American goalkeepers of all time. What, what was that opportunity to work with those guys like? And did you learn a lot from those guys as well? Yeah, I mean, Tony and I had called like 20 games together down in Florida before I ended up getting the fire gig. So he was the one who like recommended me for, for the fire job. And I just felt so indebted to him. And like he and I immediately had a connection on air. But it took a little bit for like personally for him and I to get on the same page, right? Like he's 52 years old. I was 26. And like, I didn't have that same rapport with him off the air, but like we had this great chemistry on the air. It was like bizarre, um, but we'd slowly build like a really good friendship and I still keep in touch with him all the time. And, you know, working with him, I, I just learned to really simplify everything that I was doing and just call the game as I see it, call it down the middle, be a national sort of feel slightly shaded towards the fire, right? Because that's who we were technically calling the games for. Um, and then working with Arlo was obviously great. And, um, you know, his professionalism and his ability to set the stage for a game is, is unmatched and being able to not only work with them and be in close proximity, but to have them in my ear and hearing them call the game while I'm down on the touchline, trying to provide insight to what was going on in the technical area. So, um, working with the two, like that, that was a really big moment for me to know that I was gonna be working with Tony and Arlo coming into this new MLS thing. It sort of helped lighten the burden a little bit of like me being the true voice of the Chicago fire. But I always knew that Arlo was going to come in during the summer and everything like that. So it just made things a lot easier for me and, and the transition a lot smoother to know I had like two quintessential professionals um, sort of at my side to help me through this transition. 2022 MLS announces that there's going to be a new TV deal with Apple TV. You didn't know right away if you were going to get picked up for that. Eventually you did, which is awesome. What's your routine look like and how is it different now that you're with Apple TV and you're not calling the same team every week and it's a little bit more complicated? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot different, right? Like, I, I really never really did all that much prep for the fire once I, I had already called, you know, 10, 15 weeks of them because I just knew them like the back of my hand. So like, I can just sort of roll in and I can, with my eyes closed, tell you exactly how old somebody's from the previous clubs that they played for and whatever. And like, now it's a different team every single week. So like the prep is a lot more intense and I want to try to get to the level with a lot of different teams in major league soccer that I was with the fire. That's never going to happen, but at least setting that goal for myself preparation wise will help me get close to achieving it. And then sort of like have the same sort of effect that I had as the voice of the fire that I can maybe try to get close to that for fans of NYCFC and Charlotte and DC and Nashville and these teams that I'm calling every single week. So Shifting your mindset and that you're always calling a national game is certainly uh, interesting. And then the level of prep, watching um, games back and, you know, I'm trying to watch two to three games back for each team if I haven't seen them yet this year. You know, taking their most recent win, taking their most recent loss, talking to some people saying, like, when did they look their worst? Okay, I'm going to go back and watch that game. When did they look their best? I'm going to try to watch some of that. Um, the prep is just a little bit more intense. And then, like, I have to train myself to be at O'Hare at 6 a.m. every single Friday, like literally it's it's in the, the amount of travel and then the miles I've already accrued with United is just like outrageous. And like it's a little bit of a trip to leave on a Friday, 
wake up in a new city like St. Louis a couple of weeks ago, and I've only been there for 12 hours, and I'm already checking in for my return flight back to Chicago, and I have to call a game that night, and then like I get home, I try to take Monday for myself as like a me day because Sunday I'm still traveling, but I still need to watch the fire so I can do the podcast and keep up with everything that's going on on their end, catch up on all the highlights and everything like that. So it's it's a it, it's been a total lifestyle adjustment, one that like I'm happy to make, and this is the most fun in the in the entire world to be able to do this. But like it's definitely been um, a challenge to to shift my mindset uh, from a routine standpoint, preparation, and and the whole thing. So you mentioned Syracuse before. I'm here at Syracuse. A lot of my friends are BDJ majors. What advice would you give to someone starting their first commentary jobs? A lot of my friends are starting with minor league baseball teams, UPSL teams, stuff like that. So what advice would you give to those people who are just starting out? I mean, the same thing that that any other play-by-play broadcaster is going to say, and it's a cliche for a reason, reps, 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 and more reps. I mean, that's the only reason why I got to where I am because I was incredibly raw, had no professional training, and I ended up calling 500 games in three years down a Vista World link. That's the only reason I got the fire job because like, then I could say I'm not just 26 years old. I've actually, you could call me 25 years old in broadcasting years because I've called the equivalent of like 25 MLS seasons over the course of three years if I've called 500 games. So like getting repetitions, finding out what your voice sounds like um, and making sure it's your voice, right? It's not Arlo's voice. It's not John Strong's voice. It's not Peter Drury's voice. It's your voice. And that takes a while and that takes confidence. And um, the other thing is just be a good person and be somebody that people want to work with. My old boss at Vista World Link, Mike Friedman, who's helped me immensely in my career and he's a good friend. The thing he always says to me, and I've seen it ring true more times than I care to remember, people would rather work with an A person and a B minus talent or a C plus talent than work with a C person and an A talent any day of the week, especially when you're young and starting out. If you can be a good person and be somebody that your stage manager and be somebody that you're A2 and you're A1 and your producer and your director and your AD and the whole thing want to work with, it's going to get around and you're going to find out that like the other things and becoming an A talent from a B minus talent or from a C plus talent, those things can happen if you surround yourself with the right people and you work hard. Becoming a good person, that needs to start immediately as soon as you enter the workforce. And um, thankfully, I had a bunch of people in my corner to sort of tell me that early so that I was able to um, at least fool some people into thinking that I'm a good person. <laughs> well, we have you here. We'll talk a little bit about the Chicago Fire because while you're not calling every game anymore, you're still keeping up with the team and you're still a club ambassador. So maybe it's not the best stretch right now for the fire, maybe struggling to hold on to some late leads, maybe being like some potatoes rather than eggs. Um, so what do you think of going wrong right now with the fire in terms of that mentality? Cause you know, we've got a psychology major over here. <laughs> um, so I was at the town hall meeting last night um, and it was heated, but it was good. It was healthy for everyone. I think the fans got some things off their chest. I think CJ and Junior were happy to explain what's been going on. Um, and, and that was the buzzword, was mentality. And I, I had a feeling that's what it was. And I think a lot, I think you guys knew that that's kind of what it was. I think some people thought that like the substitutions in the Red Bulls games were like defensive, let's set up shop and let's just pray we get three points. That's not the case. Like, when those substitutions were made and CJ and Junior did an excellent job of explaining this to everybody last night, like 
those substitutions were intended so that we could push further up the field. What you end up planning and what ends up unfolding on the field can sometimes be two completely different things. And I hear this from not just them, but Nick Cushion was talking about that in NYCFC's loss last weekend against Toronto. Like, they lost the plot. That's one of the best teams in the league with some of the best young talent in the world. They set out to, and to execute a game plan, and the guys just didn't do it. Now, you can turn back and say that that's coaching, and if your guys aren't executing a game plan, they're not executing a game plan. But we still have to remember this is MLS and that there's a lot of young players on the field for you know NYCFC, Chicago Fire, what, what have you. Um, and that sometimes players just don't do what they're supposed to do. And I'm not saying that that's the only thing that's going on. I think that there, this is a myriad of issues, whether it be injuries, mentality, um, sort of like a contagious um, thought process of like when the fire do take a lead and the wheels start to spin. Um, that can all lead to a tough stretch into what looks like a theme. Now, it's the coach's job, the player's job, and everybody involved at the fire um, to try to figure out a way to dispel that and try to figure out a way. And, and I'll keep banging on this drum. This team looks so much better and so much more like a potential playoff team than last year's. Now, the win total is the same right now, but if you remember, like going back to last year, it was 10 matches without a win all the way up until the June international break. At Toronto loss, up 2-0 on the road, like those devastating moments. Like, I just think that this team is in such better shape. And I also think that like this mentality thing and, and this poor stretch right now, um, it can be dealt with and it can be sorted out. But yeah, I mean, the mentality thing is, it, it's... It, it's the players, it's the coaches, and I think that that was the main message from CJ and Junior last night was that, like, this isn't just the players, this isn't just the coaches, it's not just the front office or whatever it might be. This is a collective issue that everybody needs to solve right now. Um, and, and listening to Junior and CJ, and I'm a pretty pessimistic sports fan. Like, I'm sure you guys have heard me rambling on about, like, Mets, Jets, Knicks, Rangers, this whole thing. My teams don't win. Outside of Liverpool, like all of my teams stink. I've never been alive to see any of them win. So I expect the worst always. And sometimes I fall into that trap with the fire too. But listening to CJ and Junior talk last night, I'm like, at least I know that the right people are in place to try to solve the problem. And I genuinely believe that. Um, so I, I think that this is solvable. And there are multiple parties who aren't guilty, but are certainly going to take accountability and that's what you want you want players and coaches to take accountability i think we we're seeing that and hopefully it can change sooner rather than later we mentioned jordan shakiri before obviously at the time when he signed he was the most expensive player in the history of the league unbelievable quality experience talent we know all that but right now maybe he's not 100 percent fit yet but the fire don't seem to be able to get the best out of him what do you think is missing for jordan I think it's been a really tough stretch for Jordan in terms of injuries, in terms of settling into Chicago, in terms of like a number of different things that, again, I don't think that they're excuses, especially for a player of his caliber, but I just sort of think well, what's been going on with him. Um, and when you are the guy like he is and like he hasn't been since he's been at Stoke, like there's, there's a lot of pressure that comes with it. And to start out the season to get injured and then to see Guti step in and play as well as he does or as well as he is doing, like, and then for him to step in, I can imagine that it's a difficult thing to try to then fit into this team because Guti does a lot of different things than, than Shaq does, right? Like Shaq's going to drop extremely deep to come and receive the ball. Guti's great on the half turn and wants to be in tight spaces. And so like 
then it throws off your central defensive midfielders and that double pivot below Shaq. And like there were, I mean, at least the game that he started um, against Atlanta, you could tell in the first 15, 20 minutes, like just didn't look fluid. It didn't look cohesive. And that's because Shaq just hasn't spent enough time with the first team in, in a while, right? Like it's been, it's been a minute since he's been able to do that. And since he's been healthy. So I think it's repetitions. I think it's another mentality thing with him um, and just getting right mentally. And then also just like picking out a great pass. Like as much as Shaq is a world-class player, I was just talking about this with Spencer Ritchie the other day and talking about how form and confidence are everything for any athlete, but particularly for a soccer player. And Shaq is no different. So the moment that he gets a big goal or gets a big pass and starts to carve teams up, I think you're going to see the Shaq that everybody wants to see. But like, it's been a struggle for him to be on the field, to be healthy again. Like, I go back to the concept of like, when's the last time you've seen Shaq unload from 30 yards? He's been dealing with injuries this whole time and he knows his body incredibly well. Talking to some of the medical and training staff, like he feels something potentially about to happen and the medical staff isn't aware of it. And then they go and take like an MRI or something. And like, they're like, oh my God, he, he was spot on. Like he, this guy knows his body very intimately and knows when something is about to go awry, which is great because you can prevent injuries. But at the same time, it means like if they're happening, then obviously you need to, you need to be careful with your $8 million man. So like it's, it's been frustrating to, to see the second highest paid player in the league right now, not get um, the product and the results that you're expecting. But I do think that like, more opportunity he has on the field. It's only a matter of time. I think it's an inevitability more than anything. People who know me, people who read my stuff know that there's nothing with the Chicago Fire that I love to talk about more than the homegrown kids who are breaking through. Chris Brady, Brian Gutierrez in particular. You've been here since 2020, since they signed. So just what's it been like to see their progression to now the point where they're being thrown around in the national team conversation and Guti is having a real breakout season where he is making a very real case to put Shakiri on the bench, even when he is fully fit. Just what's that been like to watch the progression of guys like that and Gaga and the other guys coming up? It's been so much fun. And and the best part about all of it is, is that like each one of them is so unique from a personality standpoint and are such good kids. Like traveling around the country with Gaga, interacting with him. Um, you know, we get off the plane and my first instinct typically when we're on a road trip like last year was to immediately get in the gym. Like that's typically my thing when we travel. Gaga's right there next to me on the bike, like shaking off the flight and everything like that. And like having conversations with him and Guti loves his hoops. And he and I, you know, talk about the Knicks and the Bulls all the time. And, you know, Chris Brady is such a good guy and always, you know, looking me in the eye when we're talking to each other and giving me honest answers. And it's just been so much fun to watch them. And like, I remember Guti, like that 3-0 win against Cincinnati at home in 2020 when he should have scored his first his first major league soccer goal, ended up having to wait until San Jose last year. Um, and Tony and I just looked at each other and we were like, this kid's got something. Like he's 17, but like there is something very real in this kid's game. Um, and then Gaga is, you know, everything has already been said about that kid and just how incredibly polished and driven he is. And then Chris is explosive. He's fun. He's different than Gaga, which is great. And like, doesn't want to try to fill his shoes. He's trying to be his own guy. So like watching all of them have so much success and like particularly Guti is like, I mean, how many 19 year olds do you know that could, when Shaq is hurt, step into the number 10 role and have all of these people like talking about potentially like where, where are you going to put Shaq now? Like even the, the fact that people are asking that question is insane. And that's how well he's been playing. So it's just been, it's been a treat to watch all of them. 
Um, you know, I'm going to sound like an old parent right now, but grow up before my very eyes, right? Awesome. So before we wrap up, Jack and I have a couple of just not totally on topic questions uh, that we just wanted to ask you. So Jack, I'll let you go ahead. You've been pretty quiet, but I'll let you ask your first one. Okay, sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say that I came up with this question actually, so I'm kind of proud of it. It's just, just a fun one. Okay. So like you said, you've been, you know, doing a lot of games, a lot of broadcasting. You had your, you put in your 500 games. Um, if you were to make a five, a uh, five aside team of broadcasters, not Colin, no color, uh, color commentators. So you can't have Tony Manola, Tony Miola, or any of those guys. Uh, who would be on your five aside team, and why? And okay, you are included in this team. And this is like from a playing standpoint. It's not like best play by play. It's like yeah. I need to play with me. Yeah. I'm going to go with Chris Whittingham, a fancy lad. Um, he, he's, he's, he's a member of season pass. Okay. Yeah. You know, on the younger side, uh, pretty technical. I've played with him before. Not going to give you a ton of minutes, but you know, five aside, I think he can, he can hold his own. Um, Keith Costigan, very cerebral, knows the game really well. Play by play guy who has some coaching licenses under his belt. So I'm going to take him. Um, Hmm. Just tough. Any tall people who could you put in at goalie at least? I don't know. Some quick reactions. Tall play-by-play guys. Oh, you know who? I, uh, Kevin Egan. Kevin Egan is another one too. Kevin Egan played um, lower-level college like I did. Like he's still pretty fit. And Kevin would be a good fit. But again, like I, I'm the tallest person on on this roster right now uh, at six feet tall. But you know, we're we're, we're going to be a short technical side. We're going to be uh, we're going to be Spain in 2010. Um, and then I think the final one. Play by play, maybe like Jake Ziven. I don't know. He's on the younger side too. He seems he knows the game. Like I'm just I'm looking. For, this is gonna sound really crappy. I'm looking for youth, right? Like like a lot of I'm I'm like the youngest play by play guy in the whole MLS season past thing. So I'm like looking for for guy for guys who are just fit and who are gonna run for me and we're gonna be an athletic but technical side. Um, so that's my that's my five aside team. Nice, nice. Okay, and this is kind of chiming into. Um like what you were talking about in college and how you were a striker at one point. Now you got brought back into left back uh, or outside back. Uh, were there any players that you kind of like tried to emulate? Like, so, so originally you were playing striker. So were there anyone that you were trying to emulate at that point? And then when your coach told you to move back, were you like watching film on anyone to try to like figure out like how I can best, like, I don't know, take the, take the, um, abilities that you had as a striker and try to translate them as an outside back. Yeah, no, it's funny that you mentioned that because like there was one person I always watched in high school, always. And like religiously was YouTubing videos on him and that was Iron Robin. And that's because I am so left footed. And like anytime I was going back to my right foot, it was only I could set you up to go back to my left. Like my co- my high school coach at the time was like, go and watch him. He's like, because you refuse to work on your right foot. But if you're going to be that left footed, be the best at it. And, I, and he was like, go and watch Iron Robin highlights. Then when I got switched to left back, my assistant coach, who's now the head coach at Stevens Institute of Technology, who actually got to a final four last year, he was like, when I got switched to left back, I was like, I'm going to need, I was like, I need to go watch somebody do, I was like, tell me, tell me who I need to go watch. He goes, Danny Alves and Marcelo. Obviously, Danny Alves is on the right side, but like two of the best fullbacks in the history of the game. So like watching the way that they interacted with their wingers and their midfielders and getting forward in the service and everything like that was super helpful for me. Um, so that became like kind of, kind of my two, my two guys that I was watching. Nice. Yeah, makes sense. More attacking kind of outside backs. Yeah. That's cool. 
when I talk to some players about different different environments, different stadiums in MLS, the one thing that they talk about, which you don't think about as a fan, is they compare the grass of the different stadiums. Being in different uh, being different broadcast booths around MLS, is there anything in particular that you differentiate between them? And like, what are the best and the worst broadcast booths uh, throughout the league that you've been to? Ooh. All right, so I know what the worst is, and it's Atlanta. And it's Atlanta because they, they, sold, they, they turned all of what typically are press and media and broadcasting booths into like corporate suites, which from a business standpoint makes a ton of sense. But when we called that game where Miles Robinson popped his Achilles last year, Tony and I, we're in the 300 levels and we're at the corner flag. So like we have the worst view of the far side of the field where Chinoso 04 ended up scoring uh, the lone goal in that game. I think it was a 3-1 Cisneros had the hat trick or whatever. So that's the worst one. The best one, there's two. And I'm not saying this because it's the fire. Soldier Field is one of them because there's a bathroom inside of the booth and it's a, and it's a great view. It's like literally like a studio apartment. It's massive. So that's one. And then two, tied for second, I would say, um, there's three. Lower.com and TQL, brand new. And like they did an incredible job of making sure that the broadcasters are taken care of, both from like a tactical view standpoint and then also just like the accommodations and everything like that. Um, so those two are like on its own plane. And then Red Bull, Red Bull's on top of the stadium. It's not actually part of the broadcast booth. You have to take it to, the, to like the roof. And then you're walking on the roof of Red Bull Arena, but it is the best tactical view ever. Everything that unfolds on the field and formations and everything like that, you can see as clear as day, and it's the easiest way to digest the game. Like John Thorrington, the, the general manager for LAFC, like I know that he goes up to like the catwalk at now BMO Stadium, Old Bank of California, and that's where he watches the game. And that's sort of like what it is of Red Bulls for the broadcasters. It's like you feel like you're on top of the world and you can see everything that's going on. If you don't like heights, then it's not for you. But uh, for, for my purposes, it was great. All right. My final question for you of these questions is as a commentator, is there like one fixture, one game in world soccer that is your dream to call that game? Second leg of a Champions League semifinal at Anfield, Liverpool. I'd love to call a Champions League final that Liverpool were involved in, but like I still haven't gone to Anfield for a European night and everybody says that that's like the best thing in the entire world. So uh, Liverpool literally against anybody. Uh, in the second leg of the Champions League, I feel like would be a pretty pretty special treat uh, as a Liverpool fan. But like World Cup final, Champions League final, obviously those things are great. But um, yeah, I think that's my one. Awesome. Well, that, that's all the questions we had. I hope we'll get to see you again at Soldier Field um, for another fire game this summer, calling one of those games in the near future. Thank you for coming on the show, Tyler. We really appreciate it. And uh, make sure you follow him on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. You know where to find us. We'll talk to you guys later.